You are listening to a Music Secrets Exposed podcast documentary series in association with Waterfall Music and the Paul Lloyd Warner Foundation. Episode 10, The Making of The Mountains Album by touring around to beautiful scenes in nature and inspired by the majestic mountains. Also, saying goodbye to Hanaveri, Paul's great teacher of spirituality and metaphysics. And music inspired by a father's cry. Stay tuned. In the last segment, we discovered the story surrounding the recording of an album entitled Reflections in Water, a most beautiful title. In the last episode, you would have heard some of the music from that album. I just absolutely love that title, actually, Reflections in Water, because if you're a water lover, it just resonates, that title. Now, what happened next? Well, um, I'm now traveling around the country uh, making music in the wilderness and because I have summer is here this is 1991 uh, summer is here and I'm in Washington State that's the place where I would make most money during the summertime and I was an island called Whidbey Island W-H-I-D-B-E-Y it's very close to, to Seattle. Uh, it's about a 20-minute ferry ride. Uh, and uh, it's a very long island uh, in miles, around 50 miles or so wide, long rather. It's a very narrow island. Uh, but it is as beautiful as anything you'll ever see. And talk about the green of Ireland. You've got the green up there because it, it rains a lot. So it's similar, similar kind of green Everything is green up there. Everything. It's, it's just so beautiful. And the people of the island are so friendly and the food is so delicious and wherever you go, it's so wonderful. It's one of those places, it's like paradise. Well, there's some mountainous areas there and I was starting to work on mountains. I knew it was going to take me up to the Olympic range which is the largest mountains of Western Washington. And then I would go to the Cascade Range, which would be inner, uh, inside Washington State in the interior. But right now I was on the island of Woodby Island. 
And while I was there, I was doing some recording for Mountains. And I got a phone call that my teacher, my spiritual teacher, Hanabiri, had had a stroke. Oh, no. And what age was she at this point? She was in a wheelchair. She was paralyzed. Uh, oh. She can't, she couldn't talk anymore. So was she like in her 60s or her 70s, 80s? Like, 80s. Oh, she 80s. was in her 80s. Okay. Yes. And uh, she was living with her daughter. Uh, and so through my friend who double checked on everything, I said, okay, I need to come out and see her to see Hanaviri. Uh, uh, can you check with the daughter if it'll be okay if I get the address and come to the home just for a visit? And this was in uh, Hawaii, in obviously. In, uh, in Honolulu, yes. And so I got permission, yes, of course, please, here's the address and let me know when you're coming, uh, the daughter said. Fine, so I, I uh, make arrangements and get on the plane that weekend and I fly to Honolulu from Seattle uh, and um, I get to the house and my heart is so hurting because this is the woman who was my great teacher spiritual teacher yeah she'd spent so much time with you tutoring you and supporting you in the early years oh yeah she did i mean i, I wouldn't be who i am without her I, I mean, she opened up the door to ernest Holmes to religious science yes i understand all that but she's the one who did it and she's the one who i had the close relationship with the warmth you know, for a hawaiian woman <laughs> who studied with ernest Holmes. So uh, it was a, a very great lady, very great lady. And so I had to see her before anything happened. I, I was told that she wouldn't live very longer, much longer. So I went as fast as I could and um, I arrived and there in the house, I waited a few minutes, then they wheeled her out into the living room. Well, I just went right in front of her and said, Hi, Nana. This is Paul. And she went like, oh, oh, do you recognize me? It's here. You know, she's made an attempt to smile and the feeling was so good that suddenly everything opened up. It was like, a, oh, I'm looking at her again. Oh, the poor lady. I felt so bad. And how many years was it since you had seen her because you were busy in California doing all the art shows and all of that? Oh, let me count. Oh, oh gosh, it was five years. Oh, so you hadn't seen her in five years? Six years, maybe. Five or yeah. six? Yeah. Okay. Long time. Yeah. So um, um, I, I just went down the wheelchair to her feet, and I touched her feet, and I, I kissed her feet, which I'd never done in real life before, but I kissed her feet. I looked up at her with tears in my eyes. I was crying. I mean, because I know that she was going to pass. Uh, and she was in such cheerful mode. Uh, she was so happy to see me. And I had very long hair in those days. My hair went down to my shoulders, I must say, because not any longer. But then, yes, I grew my hair as long as I could. In fact, my hair went down to my waist at one point. So I showed off her, I showed her off my hair. 
Look how beautiful my hair is now. Look at she's she's smile. She is so happy to see me. She was bursting out of her skin to to just speak. I know. Yeah, and we looked in each other's eyes, and I told her how much I loved her. I'll always love her and cherish her and you know all the things that you do when you love someone who's leaving this world uh, who's still alive and uh, I had those feelings and I just the daughter was sitting in the room and the daughter was crying oh, you know yeah a grown woman yeah you know? I know but There's still two daughters one one daughter is a world famous singer, Emma Veery. Really, okay. Emma Emma Veery was the biggest singer of her day in Hawaii. And you in know, what style was, of music was she famous for? It was it was popular. Uh, she sang in the all the nightclubs and in, in, in Waikiki that sort of thing. And she she was well known and certainly she she was well funded from that. Uh, and uh, there's another daughter whom I only met once, and that was the daughter whose house that she was staying at. So uh, I um, I just cried, and I stopped crying, and I said, "Nana, I love you so much. What you did for me." And I went on and on with a string of thought around that, and things like that. And then I went and held her and said, "May I kiss you?" And she you know, she just let her cheek go like that, and so I, I kissed her on her cheek and I kissed her on the other cheek and I held her in my arms loosely and because uh, the daughter said, be careful, don't touch her too much, you know, it hurts her. So I was so very careful and then I kissed her feet again and I just told her I love her with all of my heart. I'll, I'll never forget her and she'll always be there. And uh, it was visit was a half hour, maybe an hour, the most. I think it was close to an hour. And it was time to go. And I said, Nana, I have to go. And uh, she looked at me, you know, and I don't know whether there was a tear or not, but she definitely recognized me. She knew who I was. She was present with me. There was so much to talk about. So I had to speak the words for her and try to get what she was feeling. But it was one of the most poignant moments that life could ever presented to me. So uh, I then left, very sadly. And then I went and stayed with a few friends for the weekend and uh, lifted my spirits up somewhat and then flew back to Washington to continue my work recording mountains. And did she last, uh, you know, much longer from she that lasted, point? No, not much longer. Just a few months later, she passed. Okay. And I was not able to go to the, the funeral was private. She, she was, they were not having one with all her friends, mm. just a private one. Mostly Hawaiian people. Yeah. You know, Nana was pure Hawaiian. Uh, and uh, you know she was really connected into the Hawaiian community. So she she wasn't into this big idea of having people all around her. She just wanted peace. I don't think it's what she wanted. <laughs> and it's not what Nana wanted. No, uh, mm -hmm. otherwise it would have been a, a bigger event. It's what her family wanted. Oh, I see. Uh, 
that's what we had to observe. Um, yes, uh, there was informally um, a gathering for her in Hawaii, in Honolulu, uh, months later. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was not able to go to that. Uh, but I called my phone and I, I was on my phone for a few minutes. Talk to a few friends and said a few words. Yeah. And I had my own private ceremony. You know, my great great teacher had passed. The one who had turned me on to metaphysics and mm -hmm. you know cosmic awareness and knowing so love. How did you recover from that? Because it was such an an emotional connection you had. How did you recover from it? What steps did you take? In truth, there was no recovery to speak of it in, in the classic sense of what you're referring to. Um, in religious science, I can't say with it. In metaphysics, there's just the knowingness that we, that yes, we're incarnated into a body. We have this wonderful body we live in uh, and this great life that we share have and give and share with so many other people and during our lifetimes. And then comes time to let off the mortal coal, coil and you, you move on. I'm not saying move on to another incarnation that I don't know about. People say it happens, but I, I don't necessarily believe that. But I do know that the soul moves on where the soul doesn't just die with the body uh, unless there was no soul to begin with. I mean, no, no thought, no mindedness, no goodness to the heart. Who knows what happens then? But for a person like Nana, who was so aware, so good, so kind, so compassionate and loving that uh, one would know that her soul had passed through, this veil into another in some other form and that would be unknown so what i'm seeing is that your understanding of metaphysics sustained you through the painful experience of a chapter closed in a sense from a spiritual point of view it wasn't closed but from the physical sense it had been closed right i mean there's always a morning stage there is always a a, a for the rest of my life. Look how during these podcasts, how I bring her out. She's part of these podcasts um, because that is to keep her memory alive so that this generation and the future generation will, will know about her because she's a relatively unknown person. Yes. Very, very important uh, to many. She demonstrated and still demonstrates through what you can find out about her about how to protect the mind which is the first step of understanding spirituality in a sense yes I mean there are other teachers all over the world who teach this uh, but this was the special one in Hawaii who yeah, did this. Who for impacted me. you? Uh, and her personality and her, she has, we could have so much fun with her, you know. She was a real person, not just a, a, a teacher, but 
you'd get down home with her and cook and go out and laugh. She was just a homely, fun-loving person. Yes, she was. She was. Uh, and uh, Hawaiian people are generally like that. They're amazing, amazing people. But that's not what this is about. So, all right. So with her in my heart, and I have mourned her, that's how I was able to get over it. You know, you mourn the person you, you love who has passed. They stay within you for forever. Um, but there's a period in time you move on with your life. So I got over it, as you asked me, by coming back to uh, Washington State and continuing my recording. I had duties in, in Washington. I had shows to do every weekend, big, big shows that made a lot of money. I, had to, I was booked in those shows. Um, my partner, AJ, was waiting for me. Uh, to come back so we could do these shows. So uh, I hurried back to uh, Washington State after about three days in Hawaii. And uh, I continued on mountains, recording mountains. From Whidbey Island, we went to San Juan Island. And the San Juan Islands, um, it's the capital island of the main islands in Washington, in Washington State, uh, in Puget Sound. And Puget Sound is incredibly beautiful. In the summer, the summers up there are like uh, California summers. Really? Dry, warm. And very long, very long because it's out in the far north. Yeah, and like, what's it like in the now. what's it like in the winter? Winter is uh, rainy, misty, uh, overcast, and very chilly. <laughs> That's like Ireland. <laughs> okay, but the food was great. The coffee was fabulous. The people were were phenomenal. Yeah. You know, so. It, you know, all of that made up for the bad winters, but uh, they they it, it did snow maybe twice in the winter time. So did you live? Did you live there for a time? Uh, yes, I I moved there. Uh, I kept my office. I kept my. It was the headquarters for our company was in Santa Cruz, but later on, I think around ninety two afterwards, we opened up a satellite office. Uh, up in Washington State, which I managed. I lived up there.
now uh, I'm back and we're doing shows uh, and we're recording in the middle of, of the week. Uh, the mountains are not very high there, but um, they're high enough to look down to the coasts and to feel the essence of mountains. Um, the bigger mountains were the Cascade Range, which would be like, if you take the Sierra Mountains and they, they come across Oregon and they change names and then they come into Washington and they become the Cascade Range. That range of mountains runs from the north, from the northern part, well, from Canada, all the way through the US, all the way through Mexico, all the way through the Central America, and then eventually become the Andes that go down. So look on the map, there's this gigantic mountain range that covers the top part of that hemisphere from the north to the south on the North American, South American side. It's amazing mountains. They're just stunning. Okay, uh, so I'm doing the recording and uh, it was just, beautiful time to be alive to in 1991, 92 to record music I'd never done that. Now I was, I was beginning to be able to play with two keyboards. I bought another keyboard. Now, when you say you're recording music here, is this on the piano or is this on your keyboards? Oh, and it's so all forth? keyboards now. It's all keyboards. It's all going out to nature and recording out in nature. Uh, so we set up in different locations. In the summertime is the only time we'd ever work up there. In the cold, I can't play in ice cold weather. <laughs> I don't think any pianist can. You <laughs> no, you can't. Being there, don't that. <laughs> you can't. Yeah. Um, I was experimenting with playing orchestra and choir. And I had accommodated, I, I had secured a second keyboard, a different, a Korg, but a different model. This Korg that I had, uh, the new one that I got was called the O1W. Uh, and the Korg O1W, these are no longer made. These are 1990s brand keyboards. But they had a, uh, um, a string section that was just exactly like the strings of the orchestra. It was so good. And so I, I played it and I really got those strings right because I've been practicing violin and getting the legato. It, it was a, a, an incredible time to be experimenting with music and creating orchestra and choir because that's my favorite music in the world. So did you create an album called The Mountains? Yes. Okay. And how many pieces are in that album? 
Maybe 10 or 12. All reflecting on the natural environment that you were seeing around you it's at that not, time. Yeah, they were recorded in the, well, they were recorded all over the Western US. I recorded in Colorado. I, I, you know, it's when I went around to different places and I wanted to make sure they were recorded in the high Sierras in Yosemite. They were recorded also, of course, in Washington State, up in, mostly up in the Cascades, but also in the uh, where we are right now in our story in, in the uh, uh, islands in Washington, Western Washington, Puget Sound. Mostly I was thinking for the beauty of the music. That's what really was challenging me is to be able to create a, 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 um, a full on orchestra and then a beautiful concert choir, really large concert choir that fills the hall. And then I needed also some solo instruments to excite it. And I found this incredible cello that I had on a separate, uh, I had had on a, a synthesizer that had no keyboard. Very expensive one. I, somehow I bought it. And there the cello was like so real. You, you could hear everything about the cello. Uh, it was really, really quite beautiful. So how many instruments did you have at this point? You have your I had, piano? I had two, no, well, the piano was at home. I understand and that. Now, so the piano was at home, it. and now you've got these keyboards, etc. So all together? All together at that time, two keyboards plus the one synthesizer. And the synthesizer could be connected into the keyboards. Right. So, so that's how you made it work. Yeah. So I could use, let's say, the cello that was built into the keyboard that may not have been quite so good. And then I took the... Uh, the sound coming from the the outboard or the the other uh, I would say the uh, synthesizer and bring that sound into the keyboard and I blend the two together more on more on the one coming in less on the one that was resident in there 
So when I played those notes, oh God, I could play a cello. But the only way to access that note really was for me to, if I'm playing an orchestra, that I have to go deeper, deeper down into the note to access the cello. But it's a very interesting thing. You play lighter, you get one bank of sound, and you play deeper, you get another bank of sound on these very good keyboards. So uh, it was exciting, and I was first doing it. I was just learning how to do it. And uh, I, I made, created a piece of music that I thought was very beautiful, still is around. It is beautiful. And uh, I used that music and evolved it, where now I could uh, create this gorgeous requiems, masses, things like that, that were very moving to me. So it's, it's, it sounds to me that you're inspired by the old masters in what they created and you're moving it on with the use of this new type instrument that's now really getting there in the 1990s in terms of the technology and that kind of thing. Right, but also playing music of my time. Yes. Uh, I'm not trying to play Baroque music or... Oh no, uh, it's, it's, it's music for the time, but inspired a little by the old masters. Oh, of course. Well, yeah. I'm inspired all by the classical masters. Yeah. I mean, you look at Debussy's work in my music, my piano music. Yes, completely. Yeah. I mean, I'm not Debussyan. Uh, people who don't know Debussy will not know the difference, and people who do know Debussy will will hear the difference. Well, I sounds like Debussy, but it's not Debussy. It's something else. So, you know, it's like that. Uh, of course, classical music is where where my mind is at, where I listen to all the time. Anyway, anyway, so, um, all right. So the next year comes around, it's 1992. And we do the same shows every year because they're good. You know, you uh, the show is usually in the summertime 
And then usually around January, you'll get a letter from the uh, people who are in charge of the show. And they'll send you a letter, which I got in Santa Cruz, and said, okay, these are the dates for the show this year. Uh, this is the, you have to send in the deposit by such and such date, or else you will lose your place. If you want to keep the place you had before, check here. If you want something new and where you want it, check over here. And that's why you fill out all those forms. You send in a deposit, and then now you know you'll be in the show, and then they send you a confirmation later on. So um, now it was the next year, 1992, and I had completed, now I was completing Mountains. I had not yet published the album, but I was pretty much done with it, except for one, that one big choral piece eluded me. I couldn't get a good recording of it, not one that I was satisfied with. Okay, so I'm at a show in, it, the show is named Chochokum. It's not. It's not a place. It's, it's an Indian word, north east, northwestern Indian word. I'll try to spell it. Cho C H O C H O K O H M, something like that. Chochokum. Uh, and it was. It was on Whidbey Island. Uh, and uh, it was like the first big show of the season that took place right around the July 4th holiday uh, on the island. And they gave, it was a beautiful place where you, you're walking down, a, it, it's, it's, it's a road, a two-lane road, and you see Puget Sound in the distance, and it comes down into the town. Uh, and there's a I forgot the name of the town. It comes down to the town. And many of the artists are in the town. They have a band down there. But they always put me up on the hill. So I wouldn't, my music wouldn't be disturbed by the band. And I had a view of Puget Sound. It was like the most beautiful view. You can, a million dollar view, you know. It's, and they gave me a gorgeous location year after year. It was very successful for me because people came down the hill to come into town like, oh. and then they go up the hill to go back. Okay. So, I, I so had, the footfall was, was incredible. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, and so on Saturday, I'm, I'm doing this uh, wonderful, such a high end show. People spend a lot of money. Uh, it's vacation time. You got the locals. The locals are well-to-do. They have beautiful homes up there. And you have the tourists. Uh, lots and lots of mostly Washington State tourists, but then out-of-state too. Well, the place is packed with people. Well, on Saturday, it was a Saturday and Sunday show. On Saturday afternoon, there was this gentleman who came by. He just was hanging out in the wings. He didn't come right up to the booth. And he was just walking all around my booth and listening to my music and not talking to me. I, I said hello, but I wouldn't get anything from him. And I kind of, it was worrisome. He didn't seem like a bad guy or anything like that, but who could he be? I had no idea because he was hanging around all afternoon. 
I couldn't understand it. I said, well, pay my tax, but I'm not worried about that. <laughs> Why? Okay. I, I'm honest, I haven't done anything illegal. Okay. What, what is this? I, I couldn't understand. So I let it go. The next morning, as I'm setting up the show around, the show opens at 10 o'clock. Around 8.30 or 9, you know, it takes a few hours to set up the show. Uh, and uh, early in the morning, he comes by, the same man. He comes right toward me while I'm setting up. He's, a woman with, is with him. He's middle-aged. I'd say he's in the late 60s. Uh, he comes over to me. Says, Mr. Warner, I'm so-and-so. This is my wife. Hello, hello. Says, As you know, I was uh, hanging around your booth yesterday. Yes, I guess she is. Sir. I was I was here because I was listening. I was listening to your music, and I've been listening to music of of other artists. I go to concerts. I I go to other art shows with other artists, and I listen. I'm very carefully trying to find the right artist, and I believe I found the right artist in you. And I said, excuse me, I, I'm trying to understand what you're saying. And then he, he pulls his wallet out and he opens it up and he pulls out a picture and he pulls it out and shows it to me, puts it in my hand. It was a small picture in a wallet of a young man who was their son. And he went up to Alaska to do fishing in the summer. The, Fishing boats were always hiring, mostly Washingtonians, uh, but not only. And uh, because you made a lot of money up there, was very wealthy, a lot of money in fish. And on the boat, a um, rope caught around his leg and pulled him out to sea. Oh. And he was gone. So that he'd lost his son. And they were crying. And how was it near the time when they met you? Do you know what I mean? Was it relatively recent? No, it was an hour. It was a year before. Okay. And uh, the wife was crying. She wasn't speaking yet. She said hello. Mm -hmm. And then he, they both had tears in their eyes. And he says, Mr. Warner, we listened to all this music and we believe that you are the best one. Your music is the, is the perfect. If you could write a piece of music in memory of our son, we would we'd so appreciate it. He was crying. My goodness. We'd so appreciate it. I'd try to replicate his voice, the way he sounded, you know, and oh my God, my heart just leapt out to these people. Strapping young man, he was 20, 22. In the prime, in his prime. In the prime, just the beginning of, of this youth, mm. the young man. Yeah. You know, and good looking and oh God, to see that poor kid just die like that. I could see the rope, I could see him being pulled out. I could, he was their only son, only child. Only, ch oh my goodness. Only child. And the grief that these people were feeling were just palpable, it was so real. Mm. It really got me, um, 
it got me. I mean, I have some tears in my eyes too. And they said to me, he says, look, Mr. Warner, if you can find a way in your heart to compose a piece of music in memory of our son, we can't pay you, but we would so appreciate it. We'd love to pay you, but we just don't have any money. We live on small social security funds and so forth. But if you could do this for us, and I know you don't know us, we, it would mean so much to us. And he said it in a way where he, he wasn't forcing me in his, in his question to do it. He was asking, but asking out of great humility. And what can I do? What, what, what would my answer be? There's only one answer. Oh. And the answer was, yes, of course I will. Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll be in my pleasure. I'd be very happy to. I, I, now I can't promise when. It could take me up to a year. It might be less than that, though. But it could take me up to a year. So we don't care how long it takes. You know, if you could do it, thank you so much. Oh, we'll be so grateful to you, our whole family. Yes, I will do it. I promise I will do it. They gave me his address and phone number. I gave him mine. And uh, we said goodbye. So, of course, that resonated in me. I can imagine. Big, big things. That was big because you don't get requests like that, but once in a lifetime, really. Not like that. These are people, a salt of the earth kind of people, you know, their, their son is gone and the grief is so palpable and real. And they want something to memorialize him by. And they chose music and mine. I mean, I could imagine how long it took him to find the right person. It took him a year to find someone. An honor, really. It was an honor. Uh, so um, I then went right to my keyboards that night. And for a week, I was able to finally record. I had a reason to record my requiem, my it's not a requiem, but my work for the orchestra and choir. Now I had the same reason that the great composers of the past were remembering somebody, some king or emperor, Pope, you know, and now I had my reason. And the music took on a new luster because. Oh, and I forgot to tell you, the name of the young man who passed away was Thor, T-H-O-R. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, Thor, I mean, the god of the North, you know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> of the Norwegians, of the ancient peoples of the North. Yeah. Thor. That's how they named their child. And that's how the name came to me. And so that like had extra dimension of, 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 of meaning. Of meaning, yeah. 
and of course I was thinking of Hanagiri. Yeah. And uh, I had the keyboards, I had the means, I had the money, I had the time. So I recorded a piece called Paradise on Earth in honor of four. It's interesting that the paths of grief passed between that meeting at an art show and then Nana Viri. Yes. It's very interesting. Yes. yes, because it wasn't that she was foremost in my mind, but she was in my heart. She still lives in my heart, in my thoughts. But you had the experience of what this couple were going through through the loss of their son because you Absolutely. had experienced it with Nana passing on. Yeah. Yes. It meant so much more. It did. It, 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 it wasn't like, oh, sure, I'll do it. Yes. In Meaning. fact, I did use that word. It would be my honor to make this music for you and for your son's memory.
So I got to work on that piece. And it took me a while because it wasn't this young man who passed that was the problem. It was me. The problem was me in getting my technique right. Yes. You know, that's yes. what I had to do. I had to get the right balance between the choir, the orchestra, and the cello. And make it wonderful. Music. There's nothing more beautiful than a cello. Played well. <laughs> oh, I love the cello. <laughs> you're oh, right. you're my so goodness. Right. Yes, the cello. Yeah. I oh, think if right. I didn't learn piano, I think cello would have been the one. Well, you know, I love the strings. And of course, I have friends who are great violinists and I adore their music. But I have to admit the cello is my favorite of, of the string instruments. I love the lower range. It, you know, a lower range touches me. Even though I play a lot in higher range, I love that lower that range. That deep sound, <laughs> that deep sound. A fellow or a fellow musician cellist said to me, you know, it's it's the instrument of the heart. Think of where it's positioned when it's been played. It's beside that heart space. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is. It, it's the strings of the heart in some ways. Yeah. Uh, because you know, we resonate at a lower frequency there in the heart. And, mm. and when that cello is played, our heart strings are moving along with what we're hearing. And so we're moved, we're deeply moved by, by, by that instrument. Now it might be a saxophone, you know, which is the lower end of, uh, of the horns. Um, no, it's, it's not the oh, same no. as a cello. Of course not. <laughs> I was only trying to say the lower range. I know, in, I know. Compared to the high horns. But no, the cello is its own thing. And I love the cello. And here I was trying to balance them all to all three into two keyboards and making the music that really resonates and says the song, says it all. You know, oh God, it was a, it was a challenge. And I worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. Until finally, I got it one night. I got, I got the piece. Well, I had recorded all these other mountain pieces. I had already been to Colorado, it was a year, been to Colorado. Um, there I recorded uh, mountains up in the, uh, the Rocky Mountains. Did a gloriously beautiful piece for piano and, and orchestra, a short one, but a joyful one uh, and bunch of other pieces that rep replicate mountains and mountains became my favorite of all my albums then at that point because it was so luscious and, ah but i've often heard it said by hikers and just ordinary people that you go up a mountain you come down a different person oh yes yeah well, that's true well that's very true especially when you walk up very high mountains not just a regular little mountain, but a high mountain, you struggle and you have to really struggle. You have to deal with the elements with cold weather and winds, you know, and all this stuff and challenges and rocks that fall, you, can, you know, all the stuff. It's like life, really. <laughs> it's, it's a metaphor for life, isn't it, in different ways?
So when you had the piece created called yes. Paradise on Earth in memory of Thor. Yeah. How did you tell his parents? How did that happen? I decided to wait till the album was finished, that the whole cover was designed and the album was put into production. Um, and then surprise them with several copies of the finished album, Mountains, uh, and uh, send it to them without announcement, just with a beautiful letter. My goodness, did they respond? <laughs> oh yeah, they did. I got a phone call from uh, from that gentleman, and his wife was on the phone. They had tears in their eyes. They were so happy. Mr. Warner, we when we received your letter and and and, and we saw the album and we saw that the dedication to Thor for that particular piece. I didn't dedicate the album to Thor just in memory of Thor in that particular piece. And that particular piece is pretty much the, well, there's some really good, a lot of really wonderful pieces in there, but it's the reverent part because of the choir. I always put a choir piece in my albums, even in my anthologies, because I always want that choir in there. As and what, what is it about choir that attracts you so much? What What's in the choir sound that, does something. The human voice, uh, when sung together in unison and then in harmony and in counterpoint with each other, do amazing things. Just amazing. It, from a child, I love choir music. Just loved it. it just, when I heard it, when my ears perked up and I go, oh, oh. And then, when I had my first stereo living in uh, junior high school, I had an album by Tomas Luis de Victoria, very famous Spanish choral composer of the Renaissance. His music was hymnal. It was so beautiful that I would just play it over and over again and cry weep and think, think for things of, of old, but of beauty, of life and death. And I don't know, I associate the choir with, with, with reverence for life, reverence for, for the truth. Yeah, here in Ireland, we have monasteries. There aren't as many as there used to be. But I had the experience one time of visiting a monastery, which I rarely do because it just doesn't. Well, I suppose now with COVID, you know, your discouragement too. But um, there was this church on the grounds of this monastery and an organist was playing. And in this church, which was full of light, not a dark church at all, it was actually very full of light. And after he had completed his piece in the organ, he saw that myself and the person who was with me was present listening to him and he just went away. He didn't want anyone to listen to him. Kind of felt bad after really. But then I heard Gregorian chant. I came home and I started digging into this whole idea of what were the monasteries like in years gone by in around the Renaissance period. And um, 
before music was really established, as we know with Bach and his near predecessors to the ones that came after him. And there was something very simple about it. Very, um, you know, some people complain about the Brock period being too ornate. You've got all these rich counterpoint melodies. Take the preludes and fugues that you play on piano or harpsichord back in the day or whatever. And how all the melodies just weaves together and, you know, one idea weaved in 20 different ways. And um, you listen to the Renaissance music then and you go, wow, that's simple. And it seems to me it gives more space in a sense for reverence. Well, I it's an agree. opinion. It's an opinion, but no, the opinion opinion is right on as far as I'm concerned. I... If something, if something is too ornate, it takes from the purpose from which it may be written for. In a sense, because you're so taken over by all this incredible detail and. You're kind of figuring out, okay, where's that theme? It's over here and then it's over here again and then changes key and all this kind of stuff. Whereas if it's really simple, the concentration, if it's a spiritual based piece, your mind has time to just listen to the sound would also deeply connect with the spiritual meaning of that piece. Well, you know what made the human voice so beautiful is that when you put them into these churches and vast Gothic churches, uh, you get this uh, um, echo back of resonance in the church. Yes, you do. And when you have human voices singing in unison together, that resonance creates uh, such a, a beautiful sound. It does. It does. That it becomes, it becomes pious uh, to many. And that's how you have the plain chant. Yes. You're talking about plain chant. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, the Renaissance, you know, they knew how to use harmony and, and, and Claudio, Claudio Monteverdi was the supposedly the, the great champion. He was the, great, the greatest of all the choral composers. But he wrote a lot of music for song, for singing uh, and uh, for, for love also. Uh, and then he uh, also, uh, there was also kind of a string orchestra that was played in those days along with it. It wasn't really an orchestra as we know it today. But it was the early um, part of the creation, time, if you like, of the, it was the foundation, if you will, of, of the orchestra which was to come. Right. Yes. But the choral music of the Renaissance is my favorite mm -hmm. because of you can't call it always simple. Sometimes those harmonies are very complex okay. and they'll use four-part harmony. Yeah. They did use four-part harmony. Mm. At least Monteverdi did. And most of the time they'll use three-part harmony. And when you get a bunch of voices together who are very well trained, like the King's College Choir is considered to be the greatest choir on earth. I'm mean, talking about a concert choir that is being used for spiritual music. Um, it, it's, it's just the most well-trained. And the thing is, is that uh, in the classic way, they only use boys and men. They don't use women. Now they're beginning to use women. But we take a young boy's voice who's changed. This is before the, he changes to a man's voice. 
but it still has a child's voice and it's high. Uh, it's very even, it doesn't waver. Where the girl's voice, when they sang higher, it would waver a little bit. And when you had a whole bunch of girls singing and it was wavering, that wasn't consistent to what the music was. The voice would be clear and clarion sound. So they wouldn't allow girls in, you know, until now, of course. Now, female choirs are so gorgeous, it's amazing. Well, we lost by not knowing it. Uh, and they now the King of College Choir has women too, of course, and we're living in the age. But um, getting back to Bach, the ornate music, as you said, uh, Bach is pretty much the, the acknowledged founder, beginner, of what we would today call classical music, even though there are forerunners in the Renaissance. Uh, Bach is the, Bach is where you, Bach is where you go. To begin your journey yes. within classical music as, as such. A anyone studying classical music has to begin with Bach. Mm. They know the forerunners, but uh, Bach is where it starts. And what you call ornate, and yes, what Baroque is, when you look at Bar Baroque architecture, it's totally ornate. Completely. You know, it's just ridiculous. I mean, this is so ornate, it's insane. It's incredible. You know, uh, but, but the music is not that. It has a, what you call ornateness, but it really is not. It's complex music that you need to train your mind. You need to be trained in music appreciation by a good, good professor in appreciation to train your mind to understand the counterpoint. If you can't understand the counterpoint, then it's then it's ornate. But but the counterpoint means all the melodies going on at the same time. Yes. Yeah. And how they intersect with each other. Yeah. So yeah. training your mind to hear all of them through the different instruments and see how they flow around. And Bach was the absolute genius of of uh, of music. I mean, he, I don't think anybody in music would, would, would argue with that point. When I sent the music Thor's music to this gentleman and his wife, and we had a phone call, um, there were many phone calls, not just the one. The first phone call was like, we, we've had it for a week. Uh, we all, the whole family, we just cry. We're so appreciative, Mr. Warner. Thank you so much, that sort of thing. And then I got a phone call a week later. Now we've had time to really listen to it and, and really go into it. And the music you did is so fantastic. It's not just 
that you did music for our son. You really made a great piece of music for him. We're so grateful for that and so, so forth and so on. So we stayed in touch for a little while. Now we're not in touch anymore. But I, I wanted to just let that be known. That was what I think really will. I mean, I don't want to end our, our podcast on a, on a sad note. I, I want to end it on his, their joy, their joy in having a piece of music to memorialize this song.
To find out more about Waterfall Music and the Paul Lloyd Warner Foundation, go to waterfallgiving.com. Also, stay tuned for the next Paul Lloyd Warner podcast. Enjoy. Enjoy.